Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. And I'm your host, Anna Kuzman. Today on the docket, we will be talking to Joel Murphy from the King County Family Treatment Court in Washington. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I encourage you to go back to listen to our first episode where we spoke with Evan Elkin, the Executive Director of Reclaiming Futures. In that episode, we discussed the Family Treatment Court model and the research behind the support for these programs. It will definitely give you some more context as we talk to Jill today. But first, a quick word from what some might call our sponsors. This podcast is being brought to you by the Justice Programs Office, a center within the School of Public Affairs at American University, and in part by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which is housed under the Department of Justice. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or the Department of Justice. So we want to welcome Jill Murphy to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. Jill, it's great to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. So, Jill, um, could you tell us a little bit about the family treatment court that you work in? Sure. King County's uh, family treatment court was implemented in Seattle in August of 2004 under the leadership of the Honorable Patricia Clark. And since that time, we've expanded our program twice um, and through local and federal funding are now able to serve approximately 120 children and their families per year. Our court is located in King County, which is a large urban county. So to be able to serve our population, we have two courthouse sites for our program, one on the north side in the city of Seattle and one on the south side in the city of Kent. Our program has four primary goals. The first is to ensure that children have safe and permanent homes within the permanency planning guidelines or sooner, to ensure that families of color have outcomes from dependency cases similar to white families, to ensure that parents are better able to care for themselves and their children and can seek the resources to do so, and lastly, that the cost to society of dependency cases involving substances is reduced. We are uh, an alternative to regular dependency court and designed to improve the safety and well-being of children by providing parents access to drug and alcohol treatment, increased judicial monitoring, and individualized services to support the entire family. We use an integrated model here in King County, which means that the same judge hears both the treatment and dependency matters, as opposed to a parallel court model where one judge decides on treatment matters and another judge determines issues in the child welfare case. Our team consists of the Family Treatment Court Judge, an Assistant Attorney General, a Family Treatment Court Social Worker, Court Appointed Special Advocate who represents the child's voice, Defense Attorney who represents the parent, a Treatment Specialist who brings the voice of treatment into the court, and a Family Recovery Support Specialist who is a peer supporting the family's recovery process. We also have a Court Specialist who sets and calls the court calendars, manages our recovery store, and tracks all of our program data and helps them prepare, support the judge on each of our calendars. So this team staffs each case before the parent comes in for the hearing to decide, you know, what messages to be delivered, progress that needs to be acknowledged, and responses to be given. But at the end of the day, that message comes from one voice, and that is the voice of the family treatment court judge. So in essence, the hearing really becomes a conversation between the judge and, and the parent. Could you tell us about your specific role within the program? 
Yeah, so my role is that of a program supervisor, which means I'm responsible for collaborating to maintain best practices and sustainability of the program model. Um, I also supervise the seven court staff staff attached to the program um, that I mentioned earlier, the court specialist, the treatment specialist, and the family recovery support specialist. Um, I oversee the daily operations and management of the cases by facilitating communication and case coordination and, and staffing all policy development and team meetings responsible for statistical reporting and grant writing and management. And then I also work as a family treatment court liaison to the community. Some of our listeners might not know exactly what it's like for a participant to go through one of these programs. So would you be able to walk me and our listeners through a participant's typical experience in your program and explain what exactly that looks like throughout the 12 months to two year time that they're a participant? Sure. So anyone can refer a parent to our program, but uh, we're not going to pursue that referral without first getting permission from the parent's attorney. And once we receive this permission, um, our treatment specialist will set up an intake appointment to um, complete and conduct an eligibility screening um, and take more time to kind of uh, describe the program. We often use graduates of our program um, to come in and connect with uh, potential applicants who tend to have a lot more questions about what it will be like to join us. So we, we let them hear it from somebody who's actually gone through it. Um, then if they still want to pursue it, because it's a, it's a completely voluntary program, um, the treatment specialist will then gather collateral information and summarize it into a document called the Participant for Consideration. And that um, is sent out to the whole team to review during what we call an acceptance staffing. And at the acceptance staffing, all the court parties will present information on why the case should or shouldn't be accepted um, and based on the, the eligibility criteria in our policy. But the ultimate decision is left with the judge. The judge is the final decider on what cases come into our program. If the case is accepted, then the following week, the parent will sign a contract for participation in the form of an acceptance hearing order. And this will be their first official day in family treatment court. Parents will come to court weekly until they manage to complete 30 days of UAs without any missed. They can be positive. They can still be using. We just want them to get in the habit of, you know, taking UAs and maintaining contact with us. And after that, they can move to phase one. And in phase one, it, uh, court attendance um, is required every other week to review progress in treatment and any barriers to accessing quality treatment, along with the status of visits with their child and any other needs the family might be experiencing. Once the parent is engaged with treatment and they've started services, they move to phase two of our program after they have 90 days sober. In phase two, parents come to court once a month, and in this phase, we're looking for those behavioral changes related to child safety and family recovery. If those changes have occurred and they have 120 days of sobriety since the start of the program, they move into the final phase of our program, which we consider kind of a maintenance phase. And this phase lasts until the child has been in the home for six months and six months of sobriety has been achieved since the start of the program. If the goal for the parent is not return home with their child, then uh, they must have executed a permanent plan for their child prior to their graduation. And that, that is a possibility in our program since we are an early permanency court, not just a reunification court. Um, so that's the process. But kind of what parents will experience is a gradual transition from fear and mistrust of the system and our court to beginning to trust Mate that maybe this team really does want to support them in their recovery. You know, we're not we're not going to be afraid to deliver those tough messages when necessary because we have to hold that addict um, 
thought process and that addict brain accountable, but we also take a lot of time to praise major and minor accomplishments alike. Um, they're going to experience team members being willing to drive them to treatment or sit with them through a trauma assessment if they ask us to. They're not going to get a referral on a piece of paper and nothing else. You know, we do what we call warm handoff to services for parents. We will frequently have team meetings in their home, at their inpatient treatment facility, in the park if necessary, at the library near where they work. The team just goes to wherever the um, parent is and really tries to meet to solve barriers and discuss how to move their case forward. The team talks to the parent about where their case is positioned in terms of termination filing timelines so that nothing should be a surprise if they are not on the right track for reunification. They will know that throughout the life of their case. Um, and we work with them to try to get back on the right track. You know, we work on transparency and emphasize the importance of honesty. And the whole process should feel like you have not just one person by your side, but a whole team that will walk with you until you walk out of those courtroom doors with the new community that you created for yourself in this process. What makes your program innovative when compared to other diversionary programs, problem-solving courts, or even when looking at other operational family treatment courts? Yeah, I think we have probably five aspects to our program that I that I feel are pretty unique. Um, and I think the first I want to mention is um, our wraparound coordinator position. In King County, I think we had the first, and up until I think last year, the only wraparound quarter, coordinator that was trained to specifically work in family drug courts. So wraparound is a process led by a coordinator who includes both natural and professional supports identified by the parents and children, and through the um, wraparound meetings leads the team in the development of what they call a unified care plan that consists of strengths, needs, measurable goals, and assigned tasks. These goals are then set across 10 different life domains, and um, the coordinator develops a strength, need, and cultural discovery with the parent that is used in the development of this care plan um, while assisting the team in developing those family and professional partnerships. Um, unfortunately, we only have one quarter coordinator, but she can serve uh, up to 15 families at any one time. And for those cases, the wrap coordinator becomes part of the team, although the choice to be in wraparound is completely voluntary and cannot be made part of the court order. So also unique to our program is the recent addition of our family recovery support specialist. Um, they are people who are in recovery and have also gone through our family treatment court program and um, or regular dependency case, and they can really speak to what that process feels like for a parent. Their title is also deliberate in that they don't just work with the parent, but they work with the whole family. They provide not only concrete support, but emotional and recovery support after hours and on the weekends. They're trained in motivational interviewing. They've attended both peer certification and recovery coach training courses. And they have been um, just such a welcome addition to the team. We, we brought them on for the first time last year through a SAMHSA grant. And I often hear comments from the team about, like, how did we ever do this without them? Another unique aspect, I think, is when our program model started in 2004, we really partnered with just one treatment agency. Um, but we ran into some roadblocks with that regarding client voice and choice. And so by 2009, we switched over to a new model through the creation of that treatment specialist position I mentioned earlier, which allowed for more client voice and choice in the treatment selection process by providing access to almost 30 mental health and substance use treatment disorder agencies throughout the county and state. 
So this position communicates with these individual providers and brings their voice into the court staffing. They also share out with the providers progress on the child welfare case. This has allowed us to provide both cultural and gender responsive programming for our parents and kind of remove those silos around treatment in the child welfare systems. We also set up a partnership with the Court Appointed Special Advocates, or CASA office, in which they committed to providing CASAs on all family treatment court cases. And that's a big deal because we do have a shortage of CASAs in King County, so that was um, a very unique partnership that we had. And what this allowed us to do was to always have that child's voice represented and focus brought to bear amidst conversations about the parent's treatment. So now we can tie in the children's needs to that discussion as well. For some of our listeners who might not know what CASA is, could you explain what their role is in your court? Yeah. So a CASA is a volunteer in the community. They could be a bus driver, a school teacher, you know, a retired um, tech person, and they volunteer their time and they go through a training course um, to uh, work on with children who are in the dependency court system, and their job is to represent that child's voice and, and the best interests of that child in that process. So, you know, the, the parent has their attorney, their, the social worker has their attorney and, and represents, um, you know, try to skip permanency for that child, but the child really needs to have their own voice, and this is where the CASA program comes in. I think it's some... Some other states also have um, guardian ad litems, and, and they're, they do very similar things, although there's some subtle differences. And finally, one of the most important aspects of our program, I believe, is the partnership we have with Child Welfare. They have provided us with a dedicated unit of social workers who carry a lower caseload and work on only family treatment court cases. This allows for active efforts to be made on each case and provides stability to do case collaboration with treatment and child welfare that so often um, because of time crunches, it doesn't really always get to be, you can't always do that. And so it ensures that every social worker carrying cases understands addiction and recovery, which is critical to appropriately managing these cases. What would you say are some of the most challenging aspects of your job? Well, we've really grown in our numbers, and we currently have a team of over 30 professionals between our two locations. And it's been challenging to make sure everyone understands the principles of family drug courts and have been properly trained in addiction and recovery. As I do not directly supervise a lot of these partners, I have to rely on people's desire to be on the team and to be dedicated to this model. In a field where turnover is high, forming and maintaining the relationships needed to perform this work can be challenging and time-consuming. Logistics are also difficult as we're a large county spread over um, large population and, and large uh, geographical area. And our model takes us to wherever the parent is at, which is a huge time commitment um, from everyone on the team. And when it, with a team that's large and diverse, you know, communication and accountability for professionals can sometimes provide roadblocks, which is why we spend a significant amount of time discussing group norms and strength-based communication approaches. And I'm sure working with children and families in this field, there are a a lot of rewarding aspects of your job. So could you give us a sense of some of the most rewarding parts of um, what you do from day to day? Um, Absolutely. I would say that hands down, seeing parents succeed is one of the most rewarding things. Every success is a miracle. And I feel really privileged to be able to bear witness to that kind of determination and struggle and growth. I also take immense pride in our team. They care so much and are so willing to support and go the extra mile for our families. 
and in a system you know, that's often beaten down by staffing problems and lack of funding and high rates of burnout and vicarious trauma, it's inspiring to be able to work with individuals that bring their whole heart to this work and really stay whole throughout this process. And I also find it just really exciting to be working in the family drug court um, at this moment. You know, we're, I think we're really coming into our own and bringing our own research to bear and practice to bear. And that's taking us, I think, out of the shadow of adult co- drug courts, which work really well, I think, to get us started. But I think because of the nature of what we do in the child welfare arena, I think we're realizing that we, we have a lot to contribute to this field um, as addiction is a disease that impacts the whole family and, you know, who better to inform the practice of healing families than a family drug court. In our last episode, we spoke with Evan Elkin, uh, the executive director of Reclaiming Futures, about the idea of a cross-system response, which a lot of family treatment courts take um, on their program. And um, in your when you were describing your role, you spoke a lot about um, coordinating between these massive systems and being a liaison between families and these other systems. Um, so could you go into detail a little bit and tell us about the challenges that come with working with these larger organizations to assist families in your program? Yeah, for sure. That you know, the families we work with, they have a multiple, um, they have a multitude of needs that our drug court, you know, cannot serve alone. The backbone of what we do is collaboration. However, when you have such a diverse set of needs spread throughout a large community of providers, it can be difficult to set up lasting partnerships, especially if there's not a financial incentive like a contract for services to connect us, which is often the case um, in our program. Our partner agencies, they also experience a high level of staff turnover, which makes training a burden. You know, as a drug court, we want to make sure we're utilizing evidence-based services, but how can can we ensure fidelity if we're not providing that services? So those are all challenges, but the biggest challenge is making sure we are communicating and understanding each other. Uh, For example, some mental health treatment providers might be hesitant to begin services while the family's housing is unstable. And while in a perfect world, we would all agree that safe and stable housing is foundational for the work we do. Um, There is a major housing crisis in our county, and we can't afford to wait to start services until housing is stable, as we have to navigate the federal permanency timetables that are set up through the Adoption and Safe Families Act. And this is not something that the clinician normally has to contend with. So negotiating the clinical position and the court position, you know, that's not always an easy process. We also talked about programs having a family-centered approach. And I was wondering if you had any ideas or recommendations that you could share for other programs to encourage them to take this approach when working with families in the criminal justice system. Yeah, I think what the research in juvenile family and adult drug courts are telling us is that you cannot successfully serve someone suffering from addiction without serving the family. Um, However, I would say that family drug courts uh, need to start advocating for more family-centered services in their communities. I don't think that there are nearly enough available. And while we here in King County are fortunate to live in a service-rich community, there's definitely room for improvement. Like, for example, we don't have a Celebrating Families or Strengthening Families program. Uh, These programs would be such a great addition to not only all the drug courts out there, but treatment agencies, other families in child welfare, schools, domestic violence agencies, and and the list goes on. You know, I would also recommend looking for evidence-based parenting classes that involve the parent and child together, not a classroom where the parent sits and listens to instruction, no child anywhere to be found. We all learn through practice, and you cannot practice parenting without a child present. I would say also don't forget that children and other family members have been impacted too, and to incorporate them into the planning process. 
know, find out what needs they might have and connect them to those resources. Children need their own screening assessment and evaluation referrals. In King County, we were able to partner with our early learning and um, early intervention programs so that every child under the age of three is referred for a developmental assessment and subsequent referrals, which helps make sure these children receive early intervention that can often mitigate some of the negative consequences of being exposed as an infant. And then finally, I, I would say, you know, really consider family counseling to heal past hurts and learn new communication strategies and ways of being at home because now everybody is moving toward a recovery lifestyle and that's a very different and unfamiliar posture for, for every family member. That's, that's, that's that family communication dynamic, you know, and you really can't underestimate the value of providing trauma services for, for all family members. Some of our listeners may or may not know this, but OJJDP released guidelines for juvenile drug treatment courts in December of 2016. I know that the organization most responsible for providing training and technical assistance to family treatment courts and conducting research on aspects related to these programs is Children and Family Futures. Um, And they've produced 10 recommendations to guide family treatment court practices, but those are just recommendations. So while we wait on official guidelines to be developed in the future, are there any guidelines or standards that your program follows? Well, it's interesting that you mention that because um, while Washington State does not have a certification process, um, we only the the our minimum requirements is that we have to establish um, requirements for participation in our program and develop an evaluation component. Um, that being said, we were founded on the ten key components back in two thousand four of the adult drug court model. But since um, OJJDP and, and Children and Family Futures came out with those guidelines. Um, and the seven essential practices to improving child welfare and substance use disorder treatment, we've kind of modified some of our our practices to more closely align with those guidelines. Um, and it's it's kind of an exciting time, like I said, for family drug courts, because those guidelines are uh, hopefully will soon be replaced by standards for family drug courts, like like you mentioned, that juvenile and adult have. Hopefully by the end of 2018, there's currently an advisory group being led by Children and Family Futures uh, and um, a collaboration with a host of, of a, a, there's a ton of other people, um, NADCP and OJJDP, um, and they're working on developing standards by looking at the national research, both in family drug court and non-family drug court settings, along with current practice models. Another thing that Evan and I discussed in our last episode of the podcast was how diversionary programs seem to be part of the effort to reduce mass incarceration in our country. And I think that problem-solving courts in general are leading the way in that effort. So I was curious what your thoughts were on what you would like to see from the family treatment court field in the future and how they can continue to lead the way for these types of programs. So that's it's a really timely question because just recently um, a national strategic plan for family drug courts was set forth by Children and Family Futures and OJJDP, and they listed three main goals. The first um, was to improve the effectiveness of existing family drug courts nationally by assuring that we're operating with fidelity to the model. They also want to work on expanding the reach of family drug courts and then lastly continuing to build that evidence base about what works in these drug court models. Personally, I would love to see more family drug courts use peer partners. You know, they simply can do what the rest of us cannot, and their willingness to be available at odd hours is critical as, you know, crisis doesn't work nine to five. 
I would also like to see a family drug court database system be developed like there is for adult drug courts. There are some really good systems out there that I can't take in a I can't take advantage of because it only tracks one client. You know, we have multiple outcomes within a family system, and we need a database that can capture that. You know, this would streamline information sharing, increase our ability to share outcomes across states, and would prevent us from having to rely on three different data systems, you know, from treatment, child welfare, and the court, to gather information for program evaluation. It would allow smaller courts the ability to buy something off the shelf and start tracking their outcomes, which would increase their ability to garner funding and save them some precious man hours by not having to deal with paper files. I see family drug courts being able to improve the dependency system as a whole. Already some of our practices we implemented here in King County have been adopted by the regular dependency system, and I know this is happening on a national level as well. Um, I also see small parts of the relational nature of drug courts being brought to bear through peacemaking circles and neighborhood partnerships in the criminal justice system. I also think we're teaming better with adult drug courts. I, I see adult drug courts teaming with their local family drug courts to help them serve participants with kids and drawing on um, their mutual expertise. I think the use of jail as a sanction in family drug courts and sanctions in general are kind of losing their status to be replaced more by tailored, behaviorally specific, and trauma-informed responses like we've been using here in King County for a number of years. Um, I would also, this is um, an idea that I got from attending the most recent uh, uh, NADCP conference, and I would love to see more family drug courts embrace this idea of milestones instead of the more artificial phases which we inherited from adult drug courts. So milestones are the idea that a parent's progress through a family drug court should be tied to the progress of visitation levels on a child welfare case plan. It allows for case collaboration with child welfare and treatment, flexibility in planning, and more closely aligns with child welfare case resolution outcomes. Dunklin County, Missouri was uh, first developed this concept, and I think it is appealing to a lot of us out there, and we're bringing it back to our courts at home and rethinking how families uh, progress through our programs. And finally, I would love to see more funding going into supporting family drug courts. You know, this is incredibly intense and difficult work, and it gets really tiresome to always be worried about where your next funding stream is coming from and what hoops you'll have to jump through to make that happen, because following the money all the time takes away from doing the actual work of healing families. You know, these are all our children, and these children grow up to be adults. And if we don't invest in them now, we will pay for it later. And all the research out there points to that. I really love the transition of calling phases milestones. I think that also speaks to this whole transition in language. Like, I know now we don't, we don't call graduation graduation anymore. We call it commencement because you're never fully done with your recovery as a participant in one of these programs. So I think the milestone title is really beautiful. I'm so excited when I was learned about that and I said, we're going to do this. I want to do this. <laughs> and I think our team is really excited about it too. That's great. Is there anything else you would like listeners to know about your program? Um, Maybe a couple things. I think, you know, at the heart of what we do, you know, we're relational and, and as such, you know, interdependent on each other. So if one of our partners suffers, we suffer with them. And I think what a great what a great model that is for um, what our families are going through, right? If somebody's suffering from addiction, you know, everybody's suffering from addiction. And I think just how we're set up, we model that too. Um, and, you know, some – we. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way, and one of them um, was our failure to address trauma in families. You know, 
we have finally have brought trauma services into our programming after learning some pretty heartbreaking lessons from years past at the expense of our parents. But the good news is we're seeing big difference in recovery stability after having brought those services on board. Um, and then, you know, finally, I, I can't say enough about tracking and evaluating data. It's critical. We would not be a peer learning court or have been able to expand our program without it, and it is definitely worth investing in. And I need to give give the people who created us a lot of, of credit. You know, we're fortunate to be standing on the backs of true innovators and collaborators who put ego aside, you know, used research and evaluation to inform practice and said, you know, we can do better than this. Our children deserve better than this. You know, I have a five-year-old and I, I asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up. And he responded, think outside the box. And I love that because I think that's what our founders did. And we are all the better for it. Well, that is a great note to end on. Um, Jill, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know has been a busy month for you. I really appreciate it. And the work that you guys do in King County Family Treatment Court is really, really important. So thank you. It was my pleasure. It was an honor to be asked. So thank you. For more resources on family treatment courts, please visit Children and Family Futures at www.cffutures.org. I also want to encourage you to check out the National Drug Court Resource Center website at ndcrc.org if you are looking for any resources or information on problem-solving courts. We have an extensive clearinghouse of research pieces and operational documents for practitioners working in problem-solving courts. We also have an interactive map and database of all operational drug courts in the country. If you work in a juvenile drug treatment court, please check out our website at au-jdtc.org. Be on the lookout for our next episode, where we will be talking with a participant who has successfully completed a family treatment court program, like Jill just described to us, and now works for them. You can download the episodes from this podcast series through the iTunes podcast store or on ndcrc.org. Just search ndcrc in the podcast store. If you have any of your own stories about family treatment courts or any other types of drug court, you can email us at ndcrc at american.edu or tweet at us at the NDCRC. We'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to Jill Murphy and the King County Family Treatment Court for taking the time to talk to us today and giving us some insight to the wonderful programs they operate. You do really important work and we can't thank you enough. We also want to thank WAMU Studios at American University for lending us the use of their studio to record today's episode. The Resource Center is funded in part through a grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Office of Justice Programs, U.S. Department of Justice. Neither the U.S. Department of Justice nor any of its components operate, control, are responsible for, or necessarily endorse this podcast or the NDCRC website, including, without limitation, its content, technical infrastructure, and policies, and any services or tools provided. Podcast artwork, mixing, and editing by me, Anna Kuzman. Original music by Peter Grusser, titled Skipping in the No Standing Zone. Technical support by Tim Olmstead.